Father, we are so blessed to have just the opportunity to be in your word together and to learn from all that you have written in the pages of your word, Lord, but also across the pages of history. And to learn, Father, with your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Teach us tonight. The Spirit of Jesus be upon us as we enter in and seek to understand things written here. Bless the rest of our time together. And Father, I pray this before, would you stay with us, keep us in an attitude of worship, an attitude of prayer throughout this study. Fathers, my brothers and sisters are listening to the things that I'm speaking in this teaching. I pray that they would not only be listening, but also be dialoguing with you. In their own minds and hearts. Asking you questions, praising you for what we learn and see. And just enjoying you, Lord. May we not stop worshiping simply because the music stops. Father, we carry into the study an attitude, a heart of worship tonight, and pray that you would bless it. We honor you, Father, and we honor your word. We realize that you've magnified your word above all your name. So we praise you for it. And pray that you'd speak it to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in Joshua 12. We're going to cover a few chapters tonight. We're entering into a new section of the book of Joshua. And it's an interesting section. I want to invite you as you turn there to look at the last verse of chapter 11. Now I mentioned on Sunday there's some things about Caleb that uh, I would share tonight. So you guys get to hear what it is and the rest of the fellowship there they're left out. They don't get to know and I, I'm going to encourage you not to tell anyone. <laughs> you know me, I'll break down and share it probably Sunday morning as well. But we'll get there. There are a few things to cover before we get there. Verse 23 of chapter 11 And so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. And tonight we're going to see Joshua retire from his role as Israel's commander. He's no longer going to be leading into battles. The command duties are over. The land is taken. But in the words of that great singer Bing Crosby... What do you do with a general when he stops being a general? Have you seen White Christmas? And he sings, What do you do with a general who's retired? Well, Joshua shows us. You go into real estate. It's the perfect move. He's done fighting, and now he's going to be dealing with his clients, which are all the people of Israel, and he's going to be doling out the land. Think back to the way Joshua began. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. The Lord said, Joshua, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Joshua's commission is twofold. 
first off, Joshua's commission was to subjugate the land. To go in to take it as General Joshua. To fight for it and lead the people into it. But as much as his commission was to subjugate the land, he was also to allocate the land as Israel's inheritance. If I was going to rename this section in the book of Joshua from chapter 12 through about chapter 19 or so, I think I would just call it Joshua's realty because that's what he's doing. He's giving the boundary markers of the land. Some of this may seem tedious. I'll let you know ahead of time. I don't know if you watch American Idol, but last night the guy is saying... And I hope the girls are better tonight. Because it was tedious. There's one guy up there, Sanjaya, I think his name is, something like that, uh, sang this song where over and over in the chorus he's saying, I don't want to bore you, and it was boring. It just was. Well, there's nothing boring about this section, but again, it's one of those places in Scripture where you've got to ask, okay, why is this here, and seek to understand and to know what's been going on. And what's happening right now? This is a wonderful time for the people of Israel. An exciting time. Because now they're finally getting their inheritance. They've been fighting with faith all along. But now they're taking possession of the things they believe would be given to them. And I remind you all, that's where we are in our lives. Ephesians 1.3 We've read this verse many times as we've been studying through here. It's an apt verse for the book of Joshua. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's already given it to us. Now it stands for us to take possession of those promises by faith. And Paul says in Philippians 3.12, a companion verse, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, we get into chapter 12 and Joshua begins to lay down his sword and pick up his realtor's license. And we see in chapter 12 something that's interesting. It's often something you see in retirement parties. Someone retires from a job. My mother uh, taught for 35 years in elementary and junior high schools and survived to tell about it. And at her retirement banquet party, there were people who got up and spoke about her accomplishments and the things that she had done. Same with my dad when he retired. Well, here's Joshua, and we step into chapter 12, and it is a list of accomplishments. The whole chapter, from the first to the last verse. But these accomplishments that are often touted at retirement parties, in Joshua's case, they are not his accomplishments, they are the Lord's accomplishments. And chapter 12 is a reminder of all that God had done over the previous seven years through Joshua and through the people. Verse 1 says, Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated, and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon as far as Mount Hermon, and all the Arabah to the east. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and ruled from Eroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, both the middle of the valley and half of Gilead, even as far as the brook Jabbok, the border of the sons of Ammon. And the Arabah, as far as the Sea of Chinneret, which is also Lake Chinneret, Sea of Galilee, toward the east, and as far as the Sea of the Arabah, even the Salt Sea, or we call it the Dead Sea today, eastward toward Beth Jeshimoth, and on the south at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei. 
and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salika and all of Bashan as far as the border of the Jeshurites and the Maacathites and half of Gilead as far as the border of Sihon king of Heshbon now you might remember these two kings Sihon and Og they were defeated not by the Lord through Joshua but by the Lord through Moses this is before Joshua took over and now as these things are being recounted they, they recall before they crossed the Jordan they fought two kings and their armies Sihon and Og you might remember Og Og was a big dude He was a huge king, literally. His name meant pancake. I kid you not. He was so big he had his own zip code. This is Og. Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 11 describes the size of Og. Listen to this. Only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Rephaim, what is that? We've been talking about them the last couple couple of times together. We're talking about giants. The Anakim, the Rephaim, and the Nephilim, or the Nephilim. These are all of the same kind of family. And it tells us in Deuteronomy 3.11 that Og's bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. Now an ordinary cubit is about 18 inches, foot and a half. In other words, his bed, made of iron, was 13 and a half feet by 6 feet. That's a big bed. And this is the size of Pancake's bed. Okay? Now, some think that this was not his bedstead, but was literally his coffin. It had to be that big for Og to be buried in it. He was one of the giants. Now, this is interesting. Rephaim, the word Rephaim, or the name, literally means the dead. Or shades. The dead or shades or shadows. It comes from that root word in the Hebrew, refah, which means shadow or even more so, powerless. Which is an interesting name for a group of giants. Shadows. Powerless. Makes me think of that designation for Satan, the prince of the power of the air. I like when Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Now, on the one hand, you might think, okay, because he deals with and has control over the demons in the air, but it also means he's full of hot air. It means, compared to the Lord, he is powerless. He's like a shade, a shadow, the prince of the power of the air. He's a puff of breath, and bad breath at that. But in the eyes of men, the Rephaim were giants. Not shadows, not shades. They were men to be afraid of. People of great stature and imposing height. But in comparison to the Lord, they are just shadows. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll just read this to you in verse 26. Paul writes, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. I love that verse. It's good news for all of us. Especially when we're a little down on ourselves. When we feel like we're not quite as smart as maybe those around us. Well, God hasn't chosen the smart things. He's chosen the foolish things. When there are days I fit right into that category. He's chosen the weak things. Hallelujah. To shame the strong, the base things, and the despise God has chosen. This is how God works. It says, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus 
who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I need a constant reminder of that. I believe we all do. That the reality is the greatest among us is but a shadow. The giants in the world today are shades. The greatness is in the Lord. Well, these great giants, shadows of men, included Og, and he was the last of the Rephaim, and we get to verse 6 back in Joshua 12, and going on it says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the sons of Israel, they defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh as a possession. So that whole region on the east side of the Jordan River, going literally from the Dead Sea all the way up to Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, I've told you before, is the highest, the furthest north mountain in Israel. It is snow-capped. So if people are wondering, did, when Jesus was born, is it possible that he had a white Christmas? Yes, because Mount Hermon always had snow on it. Okay? Snow-capped peak up in the northern region of Israel. So from the Dead Sea all the way up there, this is the land given to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now verse 7, these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the sons of Israel defeated beyond the Jordan toward the west, from Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon, even as far as Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave it to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, on the slopes, and in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, the king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. And that's not one W-O-N, that's one O-N-E. One king wiped out each of these. The king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachesh, of Eglon, of Gezer, of Debir, of Gader, of Hormah, Ered, Libna, Adullam, Makeda, Bethel, Tapua, Hefer, Aphek, Lasheron, Maiden, Hazor, the king of Shimron, Meron, verse 20, one. The king of Akshath, one. The king of Teanach, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jachnam and Carmel, one. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor, one. The king of Goyim in Gilgal, one. And finally in verse 24, the king of Terza, one. All in all, 31 kings. And I think that's the faster we, fastest we've ever covered a chapter in our study. Why read through all that? And what in the world is it doing here in the Bible? Why even waste our time with this? Listen, you might say these types of passages in Scripture are exactly what make Bible study difficult for me. Because I'm reading along and some of the wonderful stories of Joshua and I get to chapter 12 and it's just a list of names. And then I get to chapter 13 and it's just a listing of land. And as I go on through these, I think I'm just going to skip that and move on. Well, pause for a moment with me. And consider why this chapter's here. There's something important to know. And that's simply this. When this list was written, it could have been a who's who in Canaan. These were the big names. These were the names as they were written down in the book of Joshua that all the people of the land would have recognized and been impressed by. These were the grand names. I went back and looked this week to see who was it among movie stars who passed away in 2006. And there was a long list, probably a hundred different movie stars who passed away in this past year. I knew two names out of the whole list, which maybe shows where I am with, with movie stars. 
But when you tell me, hey, there's a who's who's list out there, my typical reaction these days is who cares? <laughs> I am so sick and tired of watching Britney Spears shave her head. And I'm tired of the whole Anna Nicole Smith. It's a tragedy, but it is just sick to me how even good news stations or those that you would think would be legitimate newscasters are spending so much time with celebrities. And Americans eat it up. And here we are in Joshua's day with a list of who's who, all of them wiped out, and this list doesn't mean a thing to us because they're now unknowns. And if we took a hundred names today of those who really matter in America, the most recognized people, those who everybody is aware of, a hundred years from now, how many people will even know who they are? I've shared before, I knew I was getting old when a kid came up to me and had no idea, no idea who the Eagles were. That freaked me out. But that's the way it is. We're in this season of the SAGs and the Grammys and the Academy Awards when Hollywood comes out to congratulate themselves on their fine work and all that they've done to care for the rest of this. And the reality is, gang, for every award that's given this season, 50 years from now, no one's going to remember any of the names. They're shadows. The shadows. But we still know the name of Moses, don't we? We recognize Joshua. People, whether they're believers or not, have some sense of awareness of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Names like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. We remember names like Ruth and David and Solomon, Esther, Peter, Paul and Mary. Not the band, the, 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 the followers of Jesus. Lydia, Priscilla and Aquila and on and on. Names like John. We remember these names. Why? Because these people boasted in the Lord. This is a different kind of giant. There are the giants who are but shadows. And then there are the giants of faith. And the contrast as we go through Joshua is very clear. That we have just read a list of shadows, meaningless to you and I, as compared to those who place their faith in the Lord and become true giants, people of stature in the Lord. The book of Hebrews describes this so beautifully. Hebrews chapter 11. And you can flip over there if you'd like to, or just follow along as I read. But Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 12 has this to say about the giants of the faith. Hebrews 11, you may well, you, well know, you Bible students, that Hebrews 11 is like the hall of the faithful. It goes through name after name of people of great faith. And in verse 12 of Hebrews 11, it tells us that there was born even of one man and him as good as dead as that, as many descendants, talking about Abraham, as the stars of heaven in number, and as innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Talking about all these descendants of Abraham, the father of the faithful, and all these faithful people. But it says the following, and this should stop us in our tracks. Verse 13, Hebrews 11. All these died in faith without having received the promises. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Like Abraham, who came from Ur of the Chaldees and made his way finally to a place called Hebron, then if Abraham kept thinking about where he came from, he never would have made it. 
But this man of faith was looking, we're told, for a better country, verse 16. A heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Skip down to verse 39. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. All these men and women of faith took possession of the promises, though some of the promises that they believed would come to pass have not even come to pass to this day. There are still things Abraham believed would happen that have yet to happen. But he died in faith, and in my mind, he died a giant. Let me ask you this question. Do you think any of these who died in faith died disappointed? People sometimes ask me, Paul, the Apostle Paul, talked so much about the rapture of the church. And to read Paul's writing, you would assume that he thought he was going any second. I knew they were going to get closer. Paul talks about this, this imminence of Jesus' return. And it's clear from his writings that Paul, I mean, you could almost see him writing and and looking up out of the corner of his eye because he just was absolutely convinced he was going to be caught up, taken home to be with the Lord. Paul died in his faith. Do you think he died disappointed? I'll tell you what, there's not a single Christian person, not a single believer in Jesus Christ who dies prior to Jesus calling us home who is disappointed. Who closes their eyes in faith in the Lord And then it's a little upset that they didn't get to see the rapture. Not a single one. They may not be buried with SAG Awards or Oscars, but they're remembered. And better still, their names are written in the right book. Which makes me think of something else with Joshua chapter 12. This list is so specific. 31 kings, every single king named in this list. And it reminds me that God keeps track. That God keeps a good record. That he knows who walked on the face of the earth. And he keeps track of how and when they walked. Revelation chapter 20 verse 12. John says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. The indication is they were not judged according to the book of life, but according to the book of deeds. We see two different kind of books here. We talked about this in the Revelation study. Some of you may remember this. There's a single volume book, which is the Lamb's Book of Life. One book that stands alone. And it simply lists what Jesus did at Calvary and who is covered by His blood. The Book of Life. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you are covered by His blood, your name is in the Book of Life. And that's the book you want to be listed in. Because Jesus says in Revelation 21-27, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase His name from the book of life, and I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. But there's a second book or books. You see, there's a single volume, the Lamb's Book of Life. And then there's a set of books called the Books of Deeds. Or the Books of Works. It's the books that God will open up at that judgment to see what people did. It's for anybody who claims to be a good person. I'm a good person. I did good things. 
And everybody's going to have their day in court if you choose that. I mean, you have two choices here, gang, and I think you get this. Most of you understand this. You have the cross. You can choose Jesus, and your judgment day is over. It happened 2,000 years ago, and you are judged righteous because you're covered by the blood of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Or, if you'd rather, there's the book of deeds. The books of works. Where you can say, I want to be judged according to what I did. And the Lord allows that. And it's called the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. And we're told there that everybody's going to have their day in court. Those who reject Jesus and want to live outside of grace and want to be a good person before the Lord will be judged based on what they did. But it's not going to be pretty because it's based on everything they did. Not just on the good stuff. The tragedy is and the reality in our lives is one sin and we're out. Not because God is a harsh, mean God, but because God is perfect and there can be no sin where God is. He is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. And so those are the two options. The Lord keeps lists. He keeps very good records. He knows exactly what's going on in this world and each of these kings is an indication of that. But again, the good news is if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, if you believed Him, received Him as your Lord, your name is listed among the saved in the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation 21, uh, 27. Actually, I don't know if that verse is right. The other one was 2012. This is 21:27. Speaking of New Jerusalem, says nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. God keeps a good track. Now, Joshua 13, going on. The realtor begins to apportion the land. Verse 1. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. And very much of this land remains to be possessed. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines. And those of the Jeshurites. And from Shihor, which is on the east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north, it is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite and the Ashdodite and the Ashkelonite and the Gittite and the Ekronite and the Avite to the south and all the land of, Can- of the Canaanite and Miara that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorite. Verse 5, and the land of the Gebelites and all of Lebanon toward the east from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as Labo Hama. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon as far as Mizrapoth Maim, all the Sidonians, I will drive them out before the sons of Israel. Only allot it to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. The land was promised, just not possessed. And there's a difference here that's important to note because it's like this in life in the Spirit. As we live the Spirit-filled life, there are two types of truths that the Lord deals with, both absolute but different and unique. The first one is positional truth. Positional truth simply means the victory has happened and our future is secure. The work has been done. That's where Israel is at this point. The work had been done. Their future was secured. They had the land. They secured the land. It wasn't completely taken, but it was theirs. In the same way, Jesus finished the work at Calvary. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he said in the Greek, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. It stands complete. It's done. And you might think, well, wait, okay, if Jesus died on the cross 
and it's finished, how come I'm still struggling? Why do I still have to fight? Why is it if it's finished, does Joshua, actually Paul, later say we have to fight the good fight? Why does he say put on the full armor of God if it's finished? Because positionally it is finished. We are in a position now where the work is complete. The work is complete. But there's another truth involved and that's possessional truth. Positional, the work's been done. Possessional means we still have battles to fight to take possession of the truth that Jesus has already secured for us. Our salvation. There are still enemies that need rooting out. Enemies that are not flesh and blood. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we studied chapter 11. We're still fighting the fight. We're still engaging in the battle. Not against flesh and blood. Not against Aunt Martha. Or dad. Or, or, or Uncle Jim. We're not fighting family. We're not fighting friends. We're not fighting people who set themselves against us. We're fighting a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. One of those had a field day with me today. It's one of those funny situations where you, you find a piece of information. Do you remember the telephone game when you were a kid? You'd sit around in a big circle. Someone would whisper something to someone and then they'd whisper the same thing all the way down. And then you'd see what it was, how it came out to the last person. That's what gossip does. I got a phone call this morning saying that someone was sending around a petition to shut down the bridge. And I just went, what? And as it turns out, it was really just someone asked a question about the bridge being here. It was as simple as that. I found out, I was told this thing about this petition before I left the house this morning. I found out the truth about it at about 4 o'clock this afternoon. So all day long, I'm having this conversation with the Lord about what we're going to do and is there a field somewhere where we can pitch a tent? What do you want us to do, Lord? Now it was good. It was good in that I had a real strong sense from the Lord, a reminder that, hey, I got it. It's covered. Even if that happened, even if the fire marshal was waiting for us tonight to say, you know what, we're not going to allow this to go on anymore. You've got to find something. You got it. You're out of here. You're done. Even if that were to happen, it's not my problem. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, it might look different, but it's up to him. But it's funny how that goes on. It was a spiritual thing that was happening. This, this force of wickedness came in and tried to deceive me and really mess with my day and I didn't appreciate it at all. I want to let you know that. Israel, Israel continues to have to fight. They will continue to fight on. Though they have their inheritance positionally, they have to take the land possessionally. And that's the Lord, what the Lord is calling on us to do in our lives as we walk in the Spirit. Now, verse 7 going on. It says, Therefore apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With the other half-tribe... The Reubenites and the Gadites, they received their inheritance which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan to the east. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to them. Now he goes through and he's going to just describe this. Verse 9, 10, all the way down through 14. He's going to describe the land given to the uh, half-tribe of Manasseh and the Reubenites and the Gadites. Now in verse 13 it says, The sons of Israel did not dispossess the Jeshurites or the Maacathites, for Jeshur and Maacath live among Israel until this day. Only the tribe of Levi, he did not give an inheritance, 
the offerings by fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance as he spoke to them. Now verse 15 tells us Moses gave an inheritance to the sons of the tribe, to the tribe of the sons of Reuben, according to their families. And then verse 16 through 23 describes this, this region given to Reuben. Then in verse 24, he turns to Gad and talks about the inheritance given to Gad and the sons of Gad according to their families. Verses 24 through 28 are all the inheritance of Gad. Then you get down to verse 29, and Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh, and it was for the half-tribe of the sons of Manasseh according to their families, and 29 through the end of the chapter there, chapter 13, is Manasseh's inheritance. Now again, we may see these things, and just a couple of quick thoughts on this chapter as we breathe through it. This stuff may not be that important to you and I. It was incredibly important to the sons of Israel. Because they could point right back to it. It's like title insurance. It's this is our land. And we have it written down here. And if anyone questions what belongs to the Reubenites, all they had to do is go right back to Joshua 13 and they can say, here are the boundaries. It's listed explicitly so that we know what land belongs to us. A couple things to think about before we move on to the next chapter. Historically, these two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, remember they're going to be on the east side of the Jordan. They wanted to settle and just stay right there and not go into the rest of the promised land. These are the first tribes that were dragged off into Assyrian captivity around 720 B.C. Israel today is surrounded, this section, what borders it is Jordan up through part of it and then Syria. Syria is ancient Assyria, still there. And there's been an ancient hatred that continues even up to this day. But the Assyrians came down into Israel and the first three tribes taken were half of Manasseh, the Reubenites, and the Gadites. It's interesting, I I, I continue to, as I read this stuff and study it and watch current events and world events going on, there was a heated debate just last week in the uh, Knesset in Israel between Benjamin Netanyahu who is becoming more and more a little hero of mine, and Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. Ehud Olmert actually stated, and it got all over Israeli news, we didn't hear about it much over here, but he stated out loud for the first time as a leader of Israel, he said the Golan Heights would have to be given back to Syria if they were ever going to have peace. The Golan Heights are a section there between Syria and Israel to the north. Without the Golan Heights, Israel are sitting ducks. Before they took the Golan Heights in the Six-Day War, before that happened, they sat down there and the Syrians just sat up there on the Golan and chucked missiles down at them constantly. It was a strategic uh, play for Israel to take control of them. And now the Prime Minister of Israel is saying, hey, if we want peace with Syria, we're going to have to give that back. I don't, I'm not speaking as a prophet here. But in watching world events and watching what the Bible says, I believe that Israel is going to have to get to a point of being absolutely indefensible before the Lord sweeps in and defends her and proves His glory in her. And if you want to read more on that and study more on that, Ezekiel 35, 36, 37, 38, very cool section of Scripture talking about an attack from the north. And I've mentioned it a few times recently. It's some reading that I'm doing. 
But here you have these tribes and they were in indefensible places. They were in the danger zone. They didn't realize it. They just kind of gave up early instead of crossing over and said, no, we just want to stay right here. And because of that choice, because they decided not to cross over, and there's a parallel here that we've talked about. They decided not to cross the Jordan. What is the Jordan River a picture of in the Spirit-led, Spirit-filled life? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, gang. Remember, they passed through the Red Sea, and Paul said that's like baptism. They were baptized into Moses in the, in the Red Sea. And he compares that to water baptism. But there's a second crossing that happens, crossing the Jordan. That's similar to the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about. And Reuben and, and Gad and, and uh, half Manasseh, they, they didn't want to cross. We have brothers and sisters gang in Christ, in Christ today, who were baptized and have chosen not to cross into the Spirit-filled life. Chosen not to have, and, and you know what? Still saved, still brothers and sisters, not someone to be judged, but limiting what the Spirit can truly do. you believe that, Rick? Uh, yeah, I do. Limiting what God can do in our life. Now listen, let me show you, let me give you an example of this limitation. We read and we study and we understand that the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, would not receive an inheritance of the land. Do you all remember that? Levi is the one tribe that didn't receive an inheritance. Instead, they were spread out among all of the tribes. There would be 48 cities given to the Levites. And those 48 cities would simply be planted in and among all of the land of the other tribes of Israel with one, well, two and a half exceptions. The Levites will not settle in cities among the Reubenites, the Gadites, or that half-tribe of Manasseh. The Levites would only settle on the west side of the Jordan. Now that's interesting to me. Verse 3 in the next chapter says Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half-tribe beyond the Jordan, but he did not give an inheritance to the Levites among them. What does this indicate to us? How, How do we see this in terms of the life we're living now? Remember, Joshua is painting this picture of the spirit-filled, spirit-led life. What is the primary purpose, gang, of the giving or the power, the dunamis of the Holy Spirit? What is the primary purpose of that power being given to a believer in Jesus? It's ministry. It's ministry. It's not power to glory in yourself. It's power to serve. It's power to witness. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4 says, There are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. That's why we have the Spirit, and especially the extra power of the Spirit, that we might serve and minister to one another and witness in the world. And ministry takes on a whole new dimension of power when we cross over, when we go across the Jordan. Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, though, would be without Levi. In other words, without their ministers. They live separated from the tabernacle, distant from the presence of God. So you have a picture in the rest of Israel where they've got ministers scattered throughout all the other tribes on the west side. But Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh would not have those ministries. In the same way, we limit ourselves when we don't receive that power gifting of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the ministries that we can have if we're covered with the Spirit. 
in this way. Now again, the two and a half tribes are still part of the family of Israel and the rest of Israel were not more righteous because they crossed over. But they did have the gifts of ministry that would be lacking on the east side of the Jordan River. I'll let you think more about that. Let's move on. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1 says, These are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance. By the lot of their inheritance, as the Lord commanded through Moses, for the nine tribes and the half-tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of the true tribes and the half-tribe beyond the Jordan, but he did not give an inheritance to the Levites among them. Verse 4. For the sons of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they did not give a portion to the Levites in the land except cities to live in with their pasture lands and their livestock and for their property. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses when they divided the land. Now again... We get into the division of the land and the allotment here and it can get tedious. It wasn't tedious for the tribes of Israel. In the same way, when I bought our property up here, we walked that property numerous times looking for the boundary marks. We wanted to see where exactly, okay, what, what property is mine? I know it's yours, Lord, but I want to call it mine just right now. What, what are my boundaries here? Where, where did, if I was going to put up a fence, where would it go? And I must have walked that property, I don't know, a hundred times. Because it mattered to me. Friends of mine didn't walk the property a hundred times because it didn't matter to them. This matters to Israel. In fact, what's interesting is no other country in history has such a specific record of boundaries of their territories dating literally back 3,500 years. No other country has this. Israel, even today, can point to the book of Joshua and know exactly where their tribes were given land by the Lord God. That's pretty cool. No other nation can do that. So the next several chapters here in in this book are Israel's title documents. For us, let's make application. It's not just about knowing my territory. It's about knowing more than that, more than something physical. It's about understanding my boundaries. If this is a picture again, and we're looking at it as a picture of the spirit-led, spirit-filled life, it's about understanding when it comes to that life, what are my boundaries? What's my territory? What's my place in the kingdom? My, My friend Chris, who played drums for us on Sunday, was here. They just left this afternoon, and we were having a conversation over lunch today. And we were just talking about ministry, and he was talking about the bridge and what he saw going on. And you got to remember, we, under, we grew up together, I mean, junior high on. So Chris knows all about me as a, as a kid growing up, and, and we have funny stories, and we think back. And it's just interesting to look at life now versus then. Now I'm a pastor of a church meeting in a barn on North Whidbey. He's a, he's a captain of a fire department in North Orange County, California. And as we talked about this... Chris made a comment because they, they were real excited about the bridge. He and his wife and kids and really excited about who they met and what they saw. It was so cool. Go, wow, look at what God's doing. And Chris kind of said, and he said it with kind of a sigh, sometimes I wonder why I'm at the fire station. Well, sometimes I wonder what I'm doing here. How often do you feel that way in your job? You're just working your job. Russ gets to leave tonight and go move lights for the city of Anacortes. 
and sometime around 11 o'clock when we're all going to be settling into our respective beds, he's going to be out there moving lights and probably asking, what am I doing here? What's my role here? Gang, listen. God has placed you where you are. He has set the boundaries, as it were, of your ministry. He has laid out the territories of your work. Harlan, we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. God has you where you are to minister where you are. And it's easy, and I did this growing up. I'd look at a pastor and go, well, they're the only ones really doing anything. Not so. Let me tell you what, as a pastor, there are times where I look at the rest of you and think, man, think of the ministry that you can do that I can't. I can't walk into your places of business and begin preaching. You can. You've been placed there by the Lord to do what the Lord has you doing. And I think that's wonderful. And we could ask, okay, so what are the parameters of my ministry? Where or how am I to serve? What's my place in the family, in the kingdom? And I want you to hear a verse that Paul writes here that I've never seen before. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14. Let me just read this to you. Paul said the following. Now this is the apostle who traveled all over the place, planted churches right and left, wrote letters, had a dramatic impact on the first century church. And listen to his words. We are not overextending ourselves. Paul says as if we did not reach to you for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ not boasting beyond our measure that is in other men's labors but with the hope that as your faith grows we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord it is not he who commends himself that is approved but he whom the Lord commends Paul's talking about a sphere of ministry a sphere of influence and each one of us have that sphere and our spheres are overlapping and spreading out Christians are a lot like, I've heard this said, Christians are a lot like manure. Spread out, we do a lot of good. Clumped together, we can stink. And that's a good way to look at it. We have our spheres of influence, the places that we are sent by the Lord to work. Those are our territories. Those are our boundaries, gang. Just as Israel is being given their boundaries, so are you being given a boundary, a sphere in which to work and function and bring Jesus to the people that he puts you in contact with. Paul says, I I know my calling. I know my place in the Lord and what he has apportioned for me. And that's where I serve. And I don't worry about who's serving over in this place. He says, I planted. Apollos, he came and watered. But God is causing the growth. Paul's not arguing with Apollos over who gets credit over the growth of, of this church or that church or this plant or that plant. He's saying, I did my job. That's my job. I'm a church planner, Paul could say. I swing into a town. I preach the gospel with all that I have. And once they're established, I'm out of there. And other people come in and they do the work. They stay. Ephesus is a good example of that. Paul planted Ephesus. He was involved in that church. The elders wept over Paul when he left there. But you know who the patriarch was? The great apostolic statesman, if you could call him that, who ended up his dying days there was John. Pastor John, who stayed there in Ephesus and loved the people of that church and of that region. And that's how it works. 
Two great truths for spirit-led ministry. Seek to know your spiritual gifting. And by the way, you can take a spiritual gifts inventory, but I would encourage you simply to pray. Stop you know, using the tools of men and start just going to the Father and saying, Lord, would you reveal to me what my spiritual gifting is? Would you give me opportunity to see how you have created me? And to become aware of what you are doing in my life so that I can embrace my gifts. We all have them. Every one of us are gifted people by the Lord. And if you're unsure what it is, don't take a survey. Pray. Father, tell me, teach me, show me. Seek to know your spiritual gifting. And once you know that, settle into your sphere of influence. Seek to know the gifting and then settle into your personal sphere of influence. It made such a dramatic difference in my life. Four years ago, for the first time in my life, I knew why I was here. I finally got it. I finally heard from the... It's because Les has a sphere of influence. And you all are probably pretty darn aware of that by now. It's prayer. And it's pastoral care. And it doesn't mean that I'm not going to come if if you call. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to respond. But it does mean that I function best in my sphere of influence. And I am blessed to have an associate pastor who functions beautifully in his sphere of influence in praying with people, in leading others and teaching others how to pray. It's the same thing spread out from there. We have shepherds in this fellowship who are each gifted in, in different areas and they have their sphere of influence. And I don't worry about... territory. I'm not wandering into Ephraim saying, boy, I better till this land. 
I just take care of the land allotted to Rick. I settle there. I function there. Again, you say, oh, how do I learn the sphere of my influence and the boundaries of my gifting in the Lord? Ask Him. Ask Him. He will show you. A lot better than I can. Now, the rest of this chapter we studied on Sunday, verses 6 through 15, is all about Caleb, mad dog Caleb. And if you weren't here Sunday, you can pick up the CD on that. But Caleb knew his portion, didn't he? He knew exactly where his sphere of influence was supposed to be. He knew his fight was against the Anakim. He wanted to go and take on the giants of Kiriath Arba, the city of the large and the loud. He wanted to go fight the giants who he earlier called his bread. This is my sustenance to take down the big boys, and I want to go fight them. By the way, does anyone remember the giant named Arba? Before we read the story on Sunday, and you see down in... Toward the end of the chapter down there, Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Had any of you even heard the name Arba before we read it on Sunday? I hadn't. Well, I did the week before because I stayed ahead. But had you heard that? If you told people, hey, historically, who is the greatest giant that you can think of? Most people would say, Goliath. Not so. According to Scripture, according to here, at least in Joshua's day, it was Arba. This guy was a great man. He was a giant. And so, here comes Caleb saying, I want to fight the giants. I'm going to take on this great man, this Arba, his descendants. But I think there was another reason why Caleb wanted to go to this region as well. To Kiriath Arba. To Hebron. It's because there were some other giants that were buried there. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, giants of faith, were buried there at Hebron. And I can just see Caleb working that out. The giants are standing in the land of my forebears, the land of the faithful where Abraham is buried and that's where I want to be he wanted to live in the city of the large and the loud that challenging, tough, hard, difficult place to live because giants like Arba challenged his faith while giants like Abraham encouraged his faith it's a good place to be and what's interesting and I didn't mention this on Sunday oftentimes you'll find yourself when you go out and you fight those giants with faith you'll find yourself coming alongside other faithful people fighting the battles together remember what Hebron means in the Hebrew it means fellowship and so we stand together in our faith and we fight together and we pray together And we move together in this place where we are challenged by the giant problems, but we are encouraged by other giants of faith. And by the way, gang, you can look around tonight and see that you are surrounded by giants of faith. You might say, not me. I see giants of faith in this fellowship that encourage me all the time. Now again... I talked about Caleb and I told you Joshua Joshua is a picture of Jesus in this book Caleb's a picture of someone and I said that I'd tell you who he is a picture of I'm going to get to that in just a section, a second but first take a quick look at the allotment of Caleb's tribe here in chapter 15 it says now the lot for the tribe of the sons of Judah according to their families reached the border of Edom southward to the wilderness of Zen at the extreme south their south border was from the lower end of the salt sea from the bay that turns to the south 
And then it proceeded southward to the ascent of Akrubim. And continued to Zen and then went up by the way by the south of Kadesh Barnea and continued to Hezron and went up to Adar and turned about to Karka. It continued to Asmon and proceeded to the brook of Egypt. And the border ended at the sea. This shall be your south border. And then it gives verse 5 the east border, which is the Salt Sea. So that the Salt Sea borders that land given to Judah, the sons of Judah, of which Caleb was one. The border on the north side was from the Bay of the Sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And then the border went up to Beth Hagla and continued on the north to Beth Arabah. On the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And again, continuing on, reading through verse 12, it gives the southern border, the northern border, the western border, and the eastern border. And all of this is covered. And again, it's important because it's specifically mapping out Judah's inheritance. And back to Caleb in verse 13. Watch what happens. Now, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely, Kiriath Arba. Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron fellowship. Caleb, verse 14, drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the children of Anak. And then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. Aksa, that, that name is cute. It means anklet. Little ankle bracelet. That's, that's what his daughter's name was. And verse 17 says, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, so he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. And it came about that when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? Talking to his daughter. And she said, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And so he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now watch this. Caleb's daughter, Aksa, he gives in marriage to this man named Othniel. You're going to come across Othniel again in the book of Judges because ultimately Othniel will be a judge of Israel in that season of time. But this um, Aksa is given to Othniel. And think this through. If Joshua is this picture of Jesus, Yeshua, in the book of Joshua, who might Caleb portray in this story? The answer to that, I believe, is I propose that Caleb is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Caleb gives us some indications of the way the Holy Spirit functions, especially in relationship with Yeshua, with Jesus. Consider this. What was it that Jesus said of the Holy Spirit? He said, John 16, 13, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak of Himself. For whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And it's interesting that we never hear or see Caleb complain that he doesn't have the stature of Joshua. He went in with Joshua. He was one of the two spies who were faithful to the Lord. 
Caleb shows the same faith as Joshua. However, Joshua gets chosen to be the, the one who comes after Moses. Joshua is the leader. Joshua gets a book named after him. Not Caleb, but Caleb never once complains. What is it that Caleb does? He does what the Holy Spirit does. He continues the commission of Joshua. He continues to do what Joshua was doing as the Holy Spirit does with Jesus. Caleb was loyal to Joshua. He functioned alongside Joshua, continuing that commission in all the land. And I love reading it because verse 14, again, Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak. Remember, he's 85 years old, and he's still fighting on. And then when he's a little tired and not sure he can take on the next city there, Kiriath Sefer, he says, okay, I'm giving away a prize to the guy who takes this. So he's still cheerleading the people to fight. He's doing what Joshua said to do. And it's exactly what the Spirit does in our lives. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. Parakletos in the Greek. Meaning one who comes alongside. And the Holy Spirit, by the way, to this day, continues Jesus' great commission in this world. He continues to fight like a Caleb in this world today. A few weeks back, when we were doing the teaching on the Nephilim and the Anakim, Someone asked this question, well, why wouldn't there be giants in the world today? Why wouldn't we see the same thing happening today? If you really believe this happened way back then, why isn't it happening today? And the easiest and quickest answer is the Holy Spirit is present in the world in a way that He never was before. For the past 2,000 years, since the Spirit was given at Pentecost, the Spirit has resided in the hearts of believers, has resided in the church, and has been a palatable, powerful presence in the world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul calls him the restraining influence. He is the reason why the tide of evil has been held back at all. Now we see evil in the world. But my friends, nothing, nothing like it was before the Spirit was given and like it will be after the Spirit is removed from this world. The restraining influence, continuing the great commission of Jesus, just as Caleb continued the commission of Joshua. But notice also something else, and here's the other parallel that's really interesting to me. Intriguing to think of Caleb as a picture of the Spirit. Caleb gives a bride away. Caleb does the ministry that the Holy Spirit is to do who prepares and gives away the bride the church to Jesus Christ Revelation 19.7 let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints where does the power come from for us to become righteous and to be made righteous today, the blood of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit who is present in our lives, sanctifying us day in and day out. Ephesians 3 verse 20, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever. Philippians 2.13, Paul says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's working. He's doing it. His spirit is alive and well in your life. Titus 3.5 Paul said he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He keeps us clean. He presents us as a bride to Christ. Caleb presents his daughter as a bride 
to this other man, Othniel. But watch this and think about this. It's my I love this picture. What does the bride go and ask of Caleb? What does the bride want? Springs of water. In fact, not just one, but two. She wants the upper springs, verse 19, and the lower springs. And Jesus said in John 4.14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That picture of salvation. And we see that picture borne out in water baptism. That we, we get baptized in that water. It's a, it's a beautiful picture the Lord gives us, a portrait. It's not what saves us, but it's a picture of that cleansing, of going into that spring. But Jesus also said in John 7.37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, He stood up and cried out, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John understands, and John says in verse 39, He spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Now the, the Negev of Judah's inheritance was a, de- a desert. It was hot, it was dry, it was a hard land. And so Caleb's daughter, picture of the church here, goes to Caleb, picture of the Spirit, and asks for the upper and lower springs, and she got what she asked for. She got those flowing waters. Caleb said, you got it, it's yours. And he provided springs of water for her. Have you asked have you sought the Lord and asked? I know several of you have been sitting here and you've heard me talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I know what you're thinking because it's what I was thinking. It's what I thought previously. What does that mean? How do I get that? Did I get that? Do I have that? What does that look like? If there's more, I want more. I want to understand. It was, again, probably four a little over four years ago where I began asking the Lord what's up with that thing? Because I started to understand as I talked about a few weeks back Jesus is the one who named this thing. Jesus is the one who presented this concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not man. It wasn't the Pentecostal church in the 1900s. You know, they took the idea and ran with it. But Jesus talked about it 2,000 years ago. The Bible describes it, explains it. And I'm just going to tell you from my own personal experience, I just started asking, Lord, what is this? Is this biblical? If so, show me. Teach me. Let me see. Put people in my life who can explain things to me. Some of them, like Harlan, remember a conversation we had by that lake over there in Anacortes. I'll never forget that. And that day, we talked and shared and, and Harlan expressed things about the Holy Spirit I hadn't really heard before. And we walked away from there, and I'm sure as far as you were concerned, it's like, well, Rick must have missed that. No, it was part of what God was doing as he was showing me the upper and lower springs. As he was teaching me about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what that means. And you may right now be sitting here going, I still don't understand what that means. Ask him. Ask him. Oh yeah, you said that about ministries before. I know because it's the easiest answer I can give you. Now we can set up a lunch date and I can sit down and talk to you some more about it and show you more scriptures and everything. Or you can just go directly to the source of the springs of of living water and ask him, Lord, I, I think I want that. Or I don't understand that. Explain it to me. 
upper and lower springs. Aksa, Caleb's daughter, asked for both. And I believe there is here a stirring picture in the church for those who would ask. And I believe there are a lot of people in the church who never ask because they just figure, I don't necessarily need that. And they wonder why they never quite have the power to do what they see sometimes other people in the family of Christ doing. Ask Him. Ask Him. Jesus said, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus said, Ask and you'll receive of the Spirit. Ask. Now, I'm going to finish this up. Chapter 15. Um, verse 20 all the way through 62 is more of the allotment of the land. And you go line by line through that and read it and all the names and everything and it's interesting. It's interesting to me in verse 47 mentions Gaza which is still there today. In fact, you'll see a lot of names that we're becoming very aware of today because of what's happening in the Middle East. But the Gaza Strip which is a hotbed of terrorism today, verse 47, there it is. And it goes on and describes several different regions and cities But what comes down and happens at the end of chapter 15, and I'll just point this out, verse 63, is a little little problematic. It ends on an ominous note. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah, could not drive them out. So the Jebusites lived with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this very day. The Jebusites are still there. I read that and I thought to myself, was it that Israel could not drive them out? Or was it that Israel would not drive them out? Was it that they chose not to do it? That it was just one fight too many? We don't know that. We can't answer that. But what we do know is the Jebusites remained in Israel's territory. Remained in Jerusalem and in that area. And even today we see a divided Jerusalem that is not wholly taken by Israel. It's interesting, on Sunday, and I forget who it was, and it may have been one of you, came up to me afterwards and showed me on the map and said, you know, the regions right now where the Palestinians are, the West Bank, Jericho, and the Gaza Strip, these regions were regions where the people were never fully driven out by Israel all the way back 3,500 years ago. And there's still a presence in the land that was never driven out. Interesting. The Jebusites remained. Now remember back from Joshua 10 who the Jebusite king was. This guy by the name of Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek, and we studied this before, prefigures Antichrist in the scriptures. Apparently, even though Adonai Zedek was taken out of the way, the Jebusites, his people, still remained. And there's a warning here. We're going to end on a warning tonight for us today. And this warning is both within and without. It's both a warning internally and externally. And it's what Jesus described in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember that parable? The farmer went out and he sowed wheat in his field and then his servants came to him later and said, apparently after the wheat started coming up, they started realizing there are tares, which are nasty weeds. And they're growing up among the wheat. Apparently your enemy has sown in and among the wheat, has sown in the tares. Should we rip them out right now? And the master said, no, no, don't do that. If not, you're going to hurt the wheat. Let it grow up together. And then when it's time to harvest, we'll pull them out. Matthew 13, 25 says, While his men were sleeping, Jesus says, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat 
and went away. The Jebusites are living in Jerusalem, in and among, right there in the center of the land, among the Jewish people. There would be a difficulty for the Jewish people. Any of the ites of the land that were not driven out would continue to be problematic for the Jewish people over time. There's a picture here today for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And listen to what John says. He says, They went out from us. He doesn't say these Antichrists, these ones causing problems, came from the outside and attacked. He said, They went out from us. They were really not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you, listen, John says, you, don't miss this, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. An anointing from the Holy One, John speaking of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to discern, to be aware, to know when Adonai Zedek's people are still living in the land. To understand that there are those who will try to set themselves against you. And it may happen from within, and it may come from without. And it's amazing how Satan works, because he will try to attack from without. And usually that's pretty obvious, and so we battle him off and win. It's like, okay, good, good. And when Satan attacks from the outside, we feel good, because we realize we're doing something right. We're upsetting him. But then, more subtly, he tries to attack from within. He'll set brother against sister sister against brother he'll get inside of church fellowships and start to stir up strife from within be careful discern we are called to discern things spiritually do we see love and joy peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness self-control are these things evident in our lives as we care for, as we love as we interact with one another This whole concept of discernment, gang, it comes from the Spirit. And you might even wonder now, you might say, well, Rick, this upper and lower springs thing sounds great. This whole idea of the Holy Spirit sounds wonderful. And when you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it sounds nice, but why practically do I really need this? Practically, gang, so that we can learn to discern by the Spirit. Because John says you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. You know what's going on because you have an anointing. You see things you wouldn't see without the Spirit alive in your life. You understand things you would not understand without being completely immersed in the Holy Spirit. Dynamic strength comes from His power at work in us. Discernment comes from His wisdom. Direction is ours from the counsel of the Holy Spirit. The upper and lower springs. Let's ask Him for it.